welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, okay, all right, all right. We are going to study the Bible, so if you have one, get it out. We'll be in John chapter 13. If you don't have one and you want one, there might be one in a pew near you. Uh, there are some pew Bibles. And we're in a series called Eat This Book, which is basically a walk through the narrative lectionary. The lectionary is a way that churches sort of walk their way through the story of God in a year. And so we have been doing this since the fall. We've made our way through uh, Advent and then, um, boy, what comes after Advent? I think that's Epiphany. And then we're in the season of Lent currently, which leads up to Easter and Holy Week and all that. So we're in the Gospel of John. That's where we've been for the last few weeks. So I'll invite you to turn to John chapter 13, and if you would, if you can, I'd invite you to stand, and we'll read from John's gospel, and then we will dive right in, see if there isn't anything that John has for us this morning. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal and took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, for rightly so, that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor, his, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Pray with me. God, here we are. And I believe here you are. And so I pray that as we are with one another, that you would give us what we need. If that's encouragement, that we would be encouraged. If it's healing, that we would be healed. If it's exhortation, that we would be exhorted. Uh, Holy Spirit, we entrust ourselves to you to the degree that we can, and we ask that you would lead us, that you would guide us, that you would shape us, invite us to be more and more like you've created us to be, which is our full selves, not anything less, but actually who we were meant to be, who you created us to be. So we pray this in the strong name of Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. You may be seated. If you could, please, take off both of your shoes and your socks. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I was thinking about this, and I'm like, this passage always comes with that awkward moment where they're like, are we seriously going to wash each other's feet? You know, like the old youth pastor deal. And I was a youth pastor at one point, so that's not off the table. But I promise you, there will be no washing of anyone's feet today. 
so you can rest assured, you can breathe easy. That's not going to happen. Um, but this is such an interesting passage, uh, so, so good. John chapter 13. As I said last week, we've sort of pivoted and we've passed the threshold of when John's gospel sort of starts to turn towards Jerusalem and towards the Passion event, the Christ event, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And um, I've entitled this teaching, The Awkward Nature of Feet and a Few Last Words. Because I want to talk about feet, and I don't get to do that very often in sermons, and so I wanted to take every, take every opportunity I get, which is not many. We're going to do that. We're going to talk about feet and then just a few last words, because these are some last words that Jesus has for his disciples in a really important moment before he sort of turns his attention towards the actions that will follow, which, of course, we know the end of that story. Um, but in this passage, it's, it's, uh, I, th- I think it's very interesting that you have both the ordinary and the mundane, the awkward, the sort of weirdness of feet, you know, like that's the centerpiece. And then in the same breath, you have this beautiful, intimate, amazing, powerful moment where Jesus does something that is never forgotten uh, by the, us today, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about what he did. And I think it's one of those moments like when you see a movie and there's maybe something that really impresses upon you and you remember it or you hear a melody in a song and you can't stop humming it. It's kind of one of those moments in John's gospel where this is a big deal, what Jesus does. There's betrayal and uh, backstabbing. There's comedy. You know, Peter's like, I don't need to, like, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part of me. He says, well, wash all of me then. And Jesus is like, Peter, settle down, right? You've had a bath today. You're going to be fine. Um, and then there's, there's surprise and there's comedy. There's, you know, who's the, who's the betrayer? All of that's in this passage. And sort of gathering it all together is just perfect, enduring love of Jesus for his disciples. So I want to talk about feet, and I want to talk about a, last, a few last words. So feet first. All you divers in the room, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, truth be told, friends, there, is, uh, there are so many threads in this passage that John is sort of pulling and weaving all together in this story. And there's a lot of things that are very profound, and we could talk for hours about them. Uh, and I'm not going to talk about a lot of them. I am going to talk about one of them briefly, and then we're going to move um, to less important things like feet. But um, John makes it an important note in, to tell us what time it is at the beginning of this passage. 13 starts... It was just before the Passover festival. And if you've been paying attention as we've been studying John, you'll note that Passover plays an important role in a lot of the passages we've studied. John is keen to tell us what time it is often, and he's connecting these events to Jewish festivals, right? And he's kind of keeping time by Passovers. John 1, he says that Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's a Passover reference. Any Jew who would have heard that in the first century knows that he's likening Jesus to Passover and this Lamb that we all know about. Uh, In chapter 2, he mentions that Jesus clears the temple courts during or right before Passover. Again, at the end of the chapter, he notes that all these miracles and signs that Jesus is performing are happening near the Passover. In chapter 6, we see that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Guess what time it is? Near Passover. And then in chapter 13, where we are, John says again, during the Passover. What John is intent and keen on letting us know of 
is this idea that, if you remember the story of God's people all the way back to the Old Testament, the Exodus is sort of the beginning of redemptive history. The Jews often believe that the Exodus is kind of the first book of the Bible. Genesis is like the prologue, but the story really gets cranked up in Exodus. And this story of the Exodus of God redeeming the people out of Egypt and into the Promised Land through this prophet liberator Moses is the the story of stories. Deuteronomy chapter 18 says to us that there will be a prophet like Moses. So the Jews know that there's a prophet coming that will be like Moses, and what John is doing by saying it's Passover, it's Passover, it's Passover, is to say that Jesus is the new Moses, who's leading the people on a new exodus, and he's the lamb, he's the Passover lamb. So John is sort of tying Jesus up in all of this. And in the middle of a very scripted meal, Has anyone ever been to a Seder meal before? Like a Passover meal? A few of you? Yeah. It's like, uh, it's very choreographed. There are certain things that happen. There's certain foods that you eat, and they're arranged in a certain way on the table. And there are questions that are asked at certain points in 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 the meal so that the storyteller can tell the story. It's beautiful, actually. And in a meal that is very scripted and very choreographed, that Jesus' disciples, men and women, who would have grown up as Jewish folks, would have had... As many days or as many years as they're alive, they would have gone to Passover meal. He totally shifts the, the game. He like pulls the rug out from underneath them. In a meal that's totally scripted, Jesus stands up, he puts a towel around his waist, he pours water in a basin, and he begins to wash their feet. At which point, everybody in the room's going, What in the world is he doing? Dude, you're way off script. And Jesus is like, I know. Hang on. It's about to get good. In a meal brimming with symbolism and meaning, Jesus begins to enact this dramatic moment in God's redemptive story. And for us, there are all kinds of things we can learn about it, but what is being said about feet? Let's talk about that first. A few things that we can say about feet, and I think um, first we would say they're ordinary and quite ugly. Amen? Okay, feet. Nearly every human has two of them. I recognize that that's not true for all, but nearly every human being on the planet has two of them. One of Laura and I's favorite movies is Notting Hill. You remember this one with, uh, is that a 90s movie? Dang it. It's not a dumb one, though. It's a, it's a love story. It's great. This will, this, will, this will pass, right? There's this great scene when Hugh Grant and Julie Roberts are having this discussion, and it's about breasts, and, and she says, I don't get the fascination. Like, Every other person on the planet has them. Your mother has them. They're just breasts. It's like feet. Every person on the planet has them, and they're just feet. They're ordinary. They're not super extraordinary. Like, everybody has them, right? And they're kind of ugly, if we're being honest. Like, I don't know anybody who brags about their feet being beautiful, Maybe yours are, but most of the feet that I've seen are just kind of gangly or sort of short and stubby. And like my toes, they're extremely long. I can actually like pick things up off the floor with my toes, which just comes in handy. You know, when you don't want to bend over, you're just like, what? Ah! And you got it. But feet, <laughs> no culture that I know of has used feet to determine beauty. Like it's not a, it's not a, a statement. Of, they're ordinary and they're ugly. And yet, Jesus... The Christ, right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a comment about his person. It's about, uh, uh, it's a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a statement about who he is, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, was there at the beginning. Jesus, the Christ, kneels down and attends to 
ordinary, ugly, dirty feet. What can we learn about the character of God in Jesus' actions? I've asked this question lately, and I wonder if Jesus is only being consistent. Because throughout Jesus' life, if you watch, you find that Jesus is often attending to the ordinary, the ugly, the overlooked. I mean, we hide our feet for almost all of the day. Like, they, they, they go without being seen, and yet they're, we all use them. Jesus often is attending to the overlooked, the ordinary, the leper, the deformed, the person that is on the, the margins or on the edges, the ordinary and the ugly. And yet Jesus is finding himself near them and attending to them. And yet here we have him again, kneeling down, attending to the feet of the people that follow him. I think you could also say that feet are the most dependable vehicles on the planet. If you think about anything that's ever arrived at your doorstep, I would argue that without feet, it would not have gotten there. Certainly, planes and trains and automobiles and even dog sleds. We went to this outdoor festival yesterday where there were actual dog sleds, like a sled with being... Have you ever done this before? Seen this? It's incredible. They're so cool. And yet, even that needs a couple pair of feet. You think about the good news of God in the world and how it arrives to you. There are always feet involved. And without the human foot, it falls short, as it were. And I think certainly the presence of God, you, you know, it's evidenced in creation and sunsets and wind and soaring eagles. But then again, when God arrives and God shows us who God really is, God has two feet in the name of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 52 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. You proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. And then Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 10. How shall they preach except that they be sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. When you think about the good work of God in the world, making its way to certain places and homes and cultures, it's always underfoot, brought by. Paul says, you as the people of God, you are ambassadors, means you represent, you take something somewhere. And so we can argue that the movement of God in the world, the good news of the gospel, it happens through these ordinary and ugly and overlooked feet. And here we have Jesus attending to this symbolic act, the symbolic act for his disciples. It's the feet that he cleans and that he honors now, the last thing I'll say about feet, which maybe this has more to do with us than it did the original hearers, but I think this is an intimate and personal moment, right? When I asked you to take off your shoes, did anybody get anxious? A couple of us in the room, myself included. I, I was getting anxious watching you getting anxious. Because for us, like, feet are, they're personal, they're intimate, they're uh, awkward, and we don't often show them off. Now, one could argue that in Jesus' time, the washing of feet was pretty commonplace, right? They had open-toed shoes, if shoes at all, and they walked most of the places that they went, and there wasn't pavement, and there were animals everywhere, and they didn't have sanitation, and so all of this was fair game for your feet by the end of the day. And so when you went to a house for dinner, it was common that someone, usually a servant or a slave or a woman or a child, would wash your feet because, well, that's polite. 
But I believe the Bible's active, it's alive. And certainly it meant something for those people then, but I think it also means something for you and for me. And what would it mean for Jesus today in 2018 to kneel down before you and take off your shoes and wash your feet? What would that be like? I think it would be very intimate. I think it would be very personal. I remember the first time I had my feet washed and it was like, it was awkward. Like, I, I'm glad I wore deodorant that day because I started sweating. It was intimate. And if I, if I were going to write this again, I would add one more. And so I'm just going to add one more. And it's not going to be on the screen, but I would say maybe it's more. Or maybe there's more going on here. Stick with me. If you think about the human body, right, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the body and how that plays into our spirituality. But one could argue that the human foot, like all of our nerve endings, go to our feet. And our, there, uh, I was just talking with my friend Kevin, who works with the body day in and day out, and he said there's all these capillaries in our legs which have to like, work extra hard to get the blood back up to our heart. But there's all these nerve endings in our feet, and if you were to map the human body, you can do it on the bottom of your foot. So like reflexology and, and, and uh, acupuncture, if you were to like, look online and you looked it up on Google, like map of the human body on a foot, you can see that on a foot, like if you press here, it's connected to your gallbladder. If you press here, it's connected to your endocrine system or whatever. Like the, your whole self, your body, your person is represented in its totality in your feet. Now hold that. Then Jesus is an Eastern Jewish teacher of the ancient world. Now, we're Westerners, and so this whole idea of energy and what, like, what's happening in a body, we're a little leery about this, but actually it's becoming more commonplace among Western people like us, where we recognize, I mean, they wrote the matrix on this theory, by the way, that we are not, we are, we're, we're energy, like we're batteries, and that's why they could put them in those pods and run the world on us, right? But there's something happening in the human person that there's energy, there's a spirit, an animating force. One could say that like the divine breathed God's breath into us and we became animated persons. So there's an energy in us and one would argue that the place in which that energy is most known or manifests itself, it's in your hands. That's why they read your palms, right? Now think about this. The scripture says that we should lay hands on one another and pray for one another. Why? Is it possible that there's more going on in this little transaction where Jesus takes his hands, the place where the energy is known to be, and washes the disciples' feet? Now, you may think I have gone off the reservation at this point. That's okay. I'm just throwing it out there for your consideration. Like, is it possible that there's more going on here? That this isn't just a perfunctory thing that Jesus is doing by washing his dirty disciples' feet, but there's something happening between Jesus and his disciples because he's asking them, do what I do, become who I am. The things you see me doing in the spirit that animates me, I want it to animate you. And how would one transfer that? How would one say, I want you to have that? Yeah, maybe it's possible that you would take your hands and that you would wash someone's feet or rub or massage or, I don't know, maybe there's something there, maybe there's not. You could, we'll see. My email is micah at awakencommunity.com. <laughs> so there's feet. And what about a few last words? A few last words. Jesus, in one of the last moments of his life with his disciples, has like, the, like this is the last word. 
Think about this. Jesus has been walking around with these men and these women for three and a half years. He's called them. He found them on beaches and said, come and follow me. He's found them in certain places and said, come and follow me. And now these people have been like on the hip of Jesus for the last three and a half years. He's literally and figuratively like poured out his life into these people. And he's saying, come and follow me. Do what I do. Teach what I teach. Be who I am. And imagine all the tables they would have sat around. Imagine all of the places they would have woken up together, all of the naps that they would have taken on the side of the road in the olive grove, all of the, like, all of the conversations they would have had along the roads and all this time and energy and investment, three and a half years with these people, day in and day out. And this is the last supper. This is the last meal that Jesus is going to share with these people. And he wants them to know one thing. I was thinking about this as I was preparing and I was sitting in the office over here and I had my headphones in, I had my, my playlist going, which is no words, just vibey music. That's how I do this. That's how I get into it. And I was thinking and I was like, imagine all of the time, seven and a half years that we've walked with these people and all of the things that God has done and the places we've found God faithful and all the ways we've seen God surprise us and all the things that we've taught each other and the ways we've learned from one another. And, the, and I thought, if I had one more day like, if I had a moment where I had, if I wasn't coming back and this was it, like, what would I say to you? And I just started weeping. I'm sitting in there. I got my headphones in. Jenna's sitting at the desk over there, and she's kind of looking at me like, what is happening to this guy? And I just started bawling. I'm crying, thinking, like, if I had that moment, what would I say to you all? I would say things like, find the well, not the fences. It's about the life and death and teachings of Jesus the Christ. I would say, love is all you need. Without it, you're a banging gong. You sound like clanging to the world. Without love, so focus on love. I would say to you, don't be afraid of the questions. I would say you are beloved and you belong and you have been called back home. You're not anything. These are the things that I would say to you. And I thought, man, in this last supper, Jesus doesn't say anything, but he does something. Because actions speak louder than words. And what Jesus does is he stands up from the orchestrated meal that everybody knew how it would go. And he puts a towel around his waist. And he pours water in a basin. And then he comes to the first disciple and he kneels down. And he begins to wash their feet. What can we learn about the character of God and Jesus' actions? First and foremost, when the power and the love of God is on display, it looks like faithfulness all the way to the end. John tells us, he's intent on telling us that Jesus knew his time had come. Remember, he's healing all these people early on, and he's like, shh, don't tell anybody. It's not my time. He knows his time has come. The kingdom time, the clock is dinging, and he knows that it's about to, go, it's about to head this way. So he knows his time has come, and John says, when he knows that his time has come, he kneels down, and he begins to wash his feet. And he says he loved them all the way to the end. I don't know who you think God is or what you think God looks like, but I would suggest that there is no more important idea than what you imagine God to be like in your head. No more important theological concept or construct than what you imagine God to be like. Because if you imagine God to be like something other than what we see in this picture, I would argue that that's not true and it's not helpful. But what we see in Jesus, which we know about God, is that he is faithful all the way to the end, even when the end is death. And you don't have to live very long to 
go through an experience where somebody is not faithful. Maybe your parents got divorced. Maybe someone was pledged to protect you and they didn't. Maybe your business partner said, I'm in, and then when it got hard, bailed. Maybe somebody on the playground was supposed to protect you and stand with you and instead actually joined the crowd and started throwing things at you. You don't have to live very long to have somebody not be faithful all the way to the end. And what you know about God, because you see it in Jesus, is that he is faithful all the way to the end. So the love and the power of God is on display. What does it look like? Faithfulness. Steadfastness. Stick-to-itiveness. All the way to the end. I'm, nothing can stop the passion of God. Not even death. I would also say that what we see on display, when the love and the power of God is on display, it looks like sacrifice, service, and power under. If you listen to a preacher long enough, they have a few hobby horses. They have a few things that they keep coming back to. I would argue it's not because they're unoriginal, it's because they really believe those things are true. You maybe have heard me say this before, and I'll say it again, because I believe this to be true to the bottom of my being, to the deepest fiber of who I am. That when we see God's power on display, it does not look like the world's power. It does not look like top down. It looks like power under. When we see God's power and glory on display, it looks like vulnerability and it looks like weakness, but it's actually power. See, we think it's weakness, but it's not. It's strength. When we see God's love and power on display, we see Jesus kneeling down in front of his disciples and serving someone else. And so we have to ask the question, when we have the opportunity to exert power in the world, what does it look like? What is it informed by? What's it shaped by? What's the animating energy of it? And if you say you follow Jesus, then I would suggest that it ought to and that it should, and I don't say that very often, but I'm going to say it today. It ought to and it should look like Jesus. It always should look like Jesus. When we, as people who follow Jesus, have opportunities to influence and have power in the world, it should look like sacrifice and servanthood and power under and never power over. So as you think about your own life and the ways that you have the opportunity to influence and exert power and authority, whether it be your children or your workplace or your school, what does it look like and who is it informed by? And this is a challenge. Every day we wake up and we see news headlines and it's the opposite often of what Jesus is leading us to. He's saying, if you want it to look like me, it's going to look like sacrifice. Laying down your life even for your enemies. Let's grow the church on that. But that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's the foolishness of God, the gospel that what looks like weakness and vulnerability and death actually gets resurrected and becomes power and authority and a rule and a reign that has no end. Come on now. So I want to invite you to consider, if you follow this Jesus, what does it mean? They had all kinds of expectations about what God would look like when God showed up. Like for the first century Jew, they're all asking the same question. This is why Simeon and Anna in Luke 2 are waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Israel. They're all waiting for God to come back to Zion, to come back to Israel, and they had all kinds of ideas as to what that would look like. Most of the time, it had something to do with Rome getting kicked out, power over, and Israel back at the top. And Jesus comes and says, actually, it's this way. It's service and it's sacrifice and it's healing and it's looking out for the sick and the orphaned and the widow and the marginalized and the people on the edges. That's what the kingdom looks like and if you want in, you're all invited. It didn't look anything 
like they thought it would. The last thing that Jesus is just, they argue about this all the way up to the end. They're like, Jesus, when, it is like, when the kingdom comes, can I sit at your right hand and can I sit at your left? Because we know that's going to be the prime spot, right? They all think it's going to look like what they think power and authority in kingdoms look like. And Jesus says, oh, this is going to be fun. It's the exact opposite. And so, if you want to follow this Jesus, and if you want your life to be informed by this good news of this gospel, then I would suggest that we consider what we learn about God in Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet. That when God's love and power is on full display, it looks like power under, lifting up of another, the serving and the sacrifice of self for the sake of others. That's the gospel. That's the way of Jesus. And that's what you're invited to. So what does that mean for you? What does that look like in your family as you parent your children? What does that look like in your workplace as you try to make money in a capitalist society? Yeah, this is where discipleship really matters and walking with community and friends really is helpful. So how do we live that out? Well, that's why my sermon is done. Because I don't have all those answers. We do this in community and we walk it out together. But that's the invitation. So I want to invite you to a few moments of silence. We're going to make our way to the table. I want to lead you in a time of confession as we do that. So pray with me if you would, and we'll make our way to the table. God, this morning as we gather around this word, this incarnate, alive, spirit-filled word, I pray that it would be just that for us. That what we learn about Jesus, what we see in Jesus, would inform who we believe you to be. And so in these next few moments of silence, as we consider what the power of God looks like, I pray that it would impact us, that it would challenge us, that maybe lights would be turned on in places where lights need to be turned on. Where we have maybe strayed, I pray that you would give us the gift of being gentle, with us and us to ourselves. I pray, God, that in these next few moments you would guide us and lead us by your Spirit. As we make our way toward the Lord's table, I want to invite us into a time of confession. God's mercy is deeper than the depths of any sea, and it is wider than the whole earth. So trusting in that mercy and in that grace, just for a moment in silence, I'd invite you to make whatever confessions you need to make. And then together we'll pray in just a moment. Together I invite you to pray this prayer. It'll be on the screen behind me. Holy God, we open our hearts to you this day and offer the truth of our lives, the fear that stifles us, the prejudice that blinds us, the ignorance that hobbles us, the doubt that plagues us. Help us, we pray, that we will find courage in unlikely place, see the world with new and gracious eyes, move to those places where love is needed, have faith that you are with us, this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My friends, my brothers and sisters, 
The Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his face to shine upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord lifts up his countenance to you and gives you his peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Grace and peace, my friends. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.